well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Welcome to another edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. My name is Cam Edwards. I'm glad you're with us on the program today. Boy, we got a lot to talk about here. Um, yeah, we got the pistol brace rule that is in effect for most, but not all, gun owners around the country. We also have this uh, shooting in Queens, New York, that appears to be a case of self-defense, but the uh, 65-year-old armed citizen did not have a concealed carry license, and now he's facing felony charges of unlicensed possession of a firearm, even as the family of the mugger who allegedly attacked the 65-year-old says they don't blame him. They blame the state of New York instead. Yeah, we're going to get to uh, both of those stories in just a moment. Before we do, however, I know you guys have definitely noticed that the U.S. dollar continues to buy less, right? Last year, the average IRA and 401k balance fell by more than 20%. If we've learned anything from the past few years, it's that anything can and will happen. Here's something that might help. A gold IRA. Gold may be a great option for you. That's right. Physical gold in your IRA. Many central banks are buying tons right now. What does that tell you? Augusta Precious Metals is a gold IRA company that offers its customers the opportunity to invest in gold. You can call Augusta Precious Metals and learn how a gold IRA can help you. If you've saved 100000 or more for retirement, call Augusta Precious Metals and get their free ultimate guide to gold IRAs. Tell them you heard it here on our show, and they'll give you a free gold coin when you open a gold IRA. Call Augusta Precious Metals and diversify your retirement today. Call 855-222-4997. That's 855-222-4997. Again, 855-222-4997. So we're not going to talk a whole lot about the uh, pistol brace rule today. I know it is now in effect, uh, but we're going to uh, concentrate on that uh, coming up next week because there's a lot of moving parts right now. You've got a couple of emergency injunctions that have been granted, one by a federal judge in Texas, uh, I think actually two judges in Texas, and then a panel in the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals uh, that have said yes to an emergency injunction as it applies to the named plaintiffs in these cases. Now, that includes, uh, thanks to clarification from the uh, judges involved here, not only the Firearms Policy Coalition and the Second Amendment Foundation, as well as Maxim Defense, uh, but all members of the Firearms Policy Coalition and the Second Amendment Foundation as well. So conservatively, there are hundreds of thousands of uh, gun owners, many of whom own these stabilizing braces, uh, who are protected, at least for now, as a result of this injunction. Uh, Whether or not that injunction gets expanded to include everyone who currently possesses a stabilizing brace that uh, may be attached to a pistol, The ATF now considers that to be a short-barreled rifle, and you must register this with the federal government or permanently disable the brace or destroy it, or else risk a federal felony charge, potential 10-year prison sentence, and fines of hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, I am hopeful, cautiously optimistic, that we might actually see this injunction or one of these injunctions uh, expanded over the next few days. So, uh, again, we're going to concentrate today on talking about uh, what's going on in Queens, New York. But we are definitely aware of what's going on. I do have to mention one thing, though. I've seen a lot of people online, and I don't know if this is just an artifact of everybody likes to bitch on social media, but I've seen a lot of people go after FPC, uh, and I guess maybe even to some degree uh, SAF, um, because this injunction applies only to its members. That's not up to the Firearms Policy Coalition or the Second Amendment Foundation. That's up to the judge. Uh, in each of these cases, or in the case of uh, FPC, the panel on the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. 
Um, it is possible that, again, at some point, this will be expanded to include um, all owners of these stabilizing braces, but it's not FPC or FSAF uh, that was out there, uh, you know, hey, let this law apply to everybody else but our members, right? That decision came from a judge. Uh, and this is a, an important first step towards removing this law completely from the books. So I, I, I confess, I don't get the uh, sniping that I've seen directed at uh, these organizations for challenging this law in court and actually getting a very important early win here. I, again, I think that's very short-sighted, uh, and I can't help but wonder how many of the folks who are complaining about uh, FPC and SAF and the fact that the injunctions apply to their members and not to the you know larger universe of uh, brace owners. I, I, I honestly, I can't help but wonder how many of them don't belong to any organization and aren't engaged in the fight other than clicking away on their keyboard uh, online and complaining about how crappy this decision is because it doesn't apply to them. Get in the fight. Get involved. Stay involved. And get in the fight, by the way, doesn't just mean tweeting out your opinions on social media. It means supporting the organizations that really are fighting these fights in court and in state houses around the country because, uh, listen, the culture war fights, they're going to happen on social media. And it is important, I think, for gun owners to engage in, in that aspect, too. But I'd say the substantive fights, the fights that are going to have a, an immediate impact on our right to keep bear arms, again, that involves the legal system. That involves politics. Uh, and that means that you've got to be engaged, informed. And yes, supportive of those organizations that are taking the fight to those arenas. You know, we've actually seen a lot of uh, legal fights over New York's new concealed carry laws. We also talked with uh, Peter Tellum, uh, an attorney in New York, not long ago. He's filed a uh, lawsuit seeking class action status uh, against the delays that are taking place in New York City. Uh, and some of the uh, the rules governing concealed carry in New York City. We're going to talk with Peter tomorrow on Cam and Company. Remember, uh, because we took Monday off for the Memorial Day holiday, we're doing a Tuesday through Friday schedule this week. Um, and I reached out to Peter after you know the news broke about this uh, 65-year-old man in New York, uh, in Queens, who shot and killed a guy who was allegedly threatening him. Uh, the 65-year-old said he believed the guy had a knife. Turns out it was a pen. But it turns out this guy was also on a bit of a rampage in the minutes beforehand. Uh, he's accused of uh, uh, breaking a glass door at an apartment complex, uh, damaging the vestibule inside. This guy has, according to the uh, NYPD, um, multiple arrests in his background. And uh, the family of Cody Gonzalez, who was the man who was shot and killed by the uh, 65-year-old, says that they don't blame the man um, for acting in self-defense. In fact. The family, according to the uh, New York Daily News, they say that they blame the state. Stephen Gonzalez, who is related to uh, Cody Gonzalez, adopted family by marriage, known him for more than 12 years, says we don't fault the shooter. He said, uh, we all feel that Cody should have been in a psych facility. If anything, the state failed him. And you know, that's not the first time that we have heard this in New York City recently. Right. We also heard this uh, regarding the uh, death of Jordan Neely, another individual who had repeated run-ins with the law, 
repeated but temporary confinements to mental health institutions and was one of many individuals who clearly fell through the cracks. Now, in the case of the 65-year-old, police say that he does not have a criminal history. He did have a legally registered rifle and shotgun permit, or at least he had a permit to, again, keep a rifle and shotgun in the home, but he did not have a pistol permit. And that means that in New York City, he's facing a federal, not a federal, excuse me, but a felony charge simply for possessing that firearm. It's supposed to be a mandatory minimum three and a half years in prison simply for possessing a gun without a permit. Doesn't matter if this guy acted in self-defense. Right now, the only charges that he's facing are those possessory charges for carrying a gun without a license. A license, by the way, that is still nearly impossible to obtain in New York City a year after the Bruin decision was handed down. We don't know whether or not the 65-year-old applied at some point for a concealed carry license uh, or even a, a pistol permit. But uh, again, this is an individual who's never been arrested, never been accused of a, a violent offense, and appears to have been acting in self-defense when Cody Gonzalez uh, approached him, demanded his belongings, uh, and uh, the 65-year-old said he thought that the pen that Gonzalez was holding was actually a knife at the moment. We will keep our eyes on this uh, case going forward and see what the Queen's DA does here, whether or not she's planning on filing murder charges right now. She says the investigation is continuing. I think it's going to be very difficult, even in New York City, to find a jury of this man's peers who would convict him um, of murder when this individual was uh, clearly threatening the uh, 65-year-old, when, again, Gonzalez's own family says, we don't blame him for acting in self-defense. We blame the state for turning a blind eye to our relatives' mental health crises, plural. And, you know, when we talk as gun owners about improving mental health access, a lot of times gun control activists say, it's whataboutism, right? That's deflection. No, it's not. You're going to do a hell of a lot more good if you actually focus on things like improving the criminal justice system, improving the mental health system, than trying to ban our way to safety or criminalize the exercise of a fundamental constitutional right. Not only are you going to be on firmer constitutional ground, but you're going to have better results. In this case, had Gonzalez gotten the help that he desperately needed, he'd be alive today because he wouldn't have threatened the 65-year-old. He would have been getting treatment. Sadly, in New York City and New York State, there is a huge mental cri health crisis going on. Um, as the, uh, I think this was from the New York Daily News, they reported uh, earlier this year on an initiative by the New York City Council to, uh, to improve uh, mental health access in New York City. They want to open up, uh, I believe, 10 uh, different centers, uh, two in each borough where uh, folks can get mental health treatment. Uh, and during the debate over uh, what they want to do here to improve mental health access, uh, New York City Council Speaker Adrian Adams said, when half of those in our jail system uh, have a mental health diagnosis, quite frankly, we have failed. And again, we've seen this with Jordan Neely. We've seen this now with Cody Gonzalez. And these are the stories that make the headlines. Right. But how many thousands 
of individuals are on the streets of New York right now cycling in and out of this broken system. There are a lot. Um, Channel 11 in New York City had a big story last year. This was last March when they wrote this. But things haven't gotten any better. Uh, And I bring this up because they actually crunched some numbers in terms of the beds that are available for those who are in an acute crisis, right? Not those who are seeking counseling. They, they, they want to see a therapist. Maybe they need to, you know, get some medication. We're talking about folks who are in a full-blown mental crisis. They are a danger to themselves or others. What happens to them? Well, there's not enough space for these folks. Data from the State Office of Mental Health from the last quarter of 2020 show that at some hospitals, at least one quarter of psychiatric patients were returning to the emergency room within 30 days of discharge, continually cycling through the system. At Bellevue in New York City, 24% of patients came back to the AR. Uh, Mayor Eric Adams has blamed the uh, crisis in part of the lack of inpatient psychiatric beds. Beds at state-run facilities in New York City have been declining for years. In 2006, the state psychiatric institutions in the five boroughs had nearly 2,100 beds, which, by the way, For a city, at that point, 7 million people, not nearly enough. But that number has steadily declined. Since then, the state has decreased its bed count by 35%. And now, as of last year, only 1,351 inpatient beds for the entirety of New York City. Yeah. So while the state has slashed the funding for state-run mental health facilities, New York Governor Kathy Hochul, uh, just like uh, after the Buffalo shooting when she said, you know what, we want the state police to to use these red flag laws every time they can. And as a result now, the state police union saying, um, we're not able to do our investigative work because we're so busy with these red flag laws. We've run out of space because of all of the guns that we've confiscated. And yet we're not able to go after drug traffickers, child sex trafficking rings, things of that nature. You know, you give this mandate to law enforcement with a finite amount of resources, and there are going to be unintended consequences. Well, the same is true with Hochul's decision to try to, and Eric Adams, too. He did this in New York City, right? He said, uh, you know what, we're going to expand uh, involuntary commitments, which is, a, a again, it sounds maybe reasonable to great in theory. But the reality is, if you don't have the space for those individuals in need, it doesn't matter if you increase the number of involuntary commitments, because ultimately, something's going to have to give, right? And what's going to give if you don't have the space to confine those individuals who are a danger to themselves or others is they're going to get put right back out on the street. Again, this is from the uh, WPIX story from uh, March of 2022. Uh, They wrote last month, State officials released new guidelines to mental health providers and hospitals, potentially expanding their ability to hold people involuntarily. The guidance said doctors need not only use an overt risk of violence to keep someone involuntarily for hospitalization or evaluation. The guidance now says that someone could also be held if they display, quote, an inability to meet basic living needs. It was a directive aimed squarely at people experiencing homelessness in mental health crisis. That would apply to Cody Gonzalez, who was living in a halfway home. Uh, The head of the city's public health system in New York City, Dr. Mitchell Katz, said the case law does support keeping people in the hospital who are a danger to themselves or others. And that doesn't just mean I'm going to kill myself. It could mean I can't feed, clothe myself. I don't have a plan. So that period of time of healing is longer. 
Uh, again, last year, the uh, mayor said that he was adding as many as 30 new interagency teams of outreach workers, medical personnel, and the New York Police Department in part to step up, at least potentially, involuntary removals. But again, all of this is a soundbite solution. We're, we're going we're gonna to make it easier to find these people who are in a crisis, who can't take care of themselves. Okay, what are you going to do to ensure that there's space for them? Nothing. I mean, we'll, we'll make some happy mouth noises. Uh, you know, we'll pass a budget maybe 10 years from now. A facility gets built that was originally slated to cost $200 million, and now it's going to cost $750 million. And, oh, yeah, we said it was going to put 250 beds in there, but it's really only going to be 125. I mean, that's their response, right? And, and look, you can't fix a crumbling system in a day. Um, and I understand that. But the... The statements by politicians like Kathy Hochul and Eric Adams are at odds with themselves. On the one hand, we're going to do something to uh, to alleviate these crises. On the other hand, uh, yeah, we got a shortage and there's not much we can do about it. Actually, they won't even go so far as to acknowledge that because that would admit that there's a problem that uh, they're not really interested in addressing, right? And so instead, it becomes about the gun, not about the mentally ill individual who is in desperate need of help. And you go after the 65-year-old man who is acting in self-defense in order to, at least in part, I believe, deflect from the failures of New York City government to protect those and to care for those who are unable to care for themselves. They've been kicking this can down the road for decades. And all the while, again, making it as hard as possible for folks to be able to protect themselves in New York City as we'll discuss with Peter Tellum on tomorrow's show. Because, again, even if this 65-year-old man had applied for a concealed carry license the day the Bruin decision came down, it's unlikely that he would have received one by now. One of uh, Tellum's plaintiffs in the lawsuit that's been filed uh, was waiting, and it it may be that his uh, licensing process has been expedited since this lawsuit was first filed, but I think he waited 14 months for the NYPD licensing division to actually approve him so that he could have his pistol in New York City. And as of the time the lawsuit was filed, that way was still continuing. You know, this is a perfect storm of New York City's own making here, where you've got more individuals who, frankly, should be institutionalized. And and, and I would say that a mental health facility is the proper place rather than a jail facility that is not going to address their mental health needs. And again, we'll quickly spit them back out on the streets. So while you're putting more dangerous individuals out on the streets, not giving them the treatment that they need, you're also making it impossible for people to lawfully protect themselves. In addition to all of the gun-free zones that New York City has put in place, again, they are still Restricting as I would say as much as possible, but I think they're doing more than what's legally possible. Restricting the ability of individuals to exercise their right to armed self-defense in public. And it's clear that they've flouted the Supreme Court's edict in Bruin. They're making no secret about that. They believe that the more armed citizens there are in New York City, the worse off the city will be. So they have made a policy choice to try to deprive people 
of their right to keep and bear arms, even as their other policies are putting more dangerous individuals, uh, you know, in the pool with these uh, folks who are just trying to go about their day safe and sound. It is a recipe for disaster. And we're seeing this play out in story after story, including this uh, recent incident in Queens. Again, we're going to be talking more with Peter Tillum about this case on uh, Friday's Cam and Company. So I would encourage you to tune in. And, uh, of course, we'll be keeping you up to date on any more details about this case, whether or not the uh, DA in Queens ends up charging the 65-year-old with something other than uh, illegal possession of a firearm. Right now, let's turn our attention to today's Armed Citizen story, our good deed of the day, and our recidivist report. Uh, we'll start there with a case out of Hawaii. Again, a state with very restrictive gun control laws, right? And 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 all of them, well, the vast majority of them aimed at restricting legal gun ownership, including uh, Hawaii's new carry killer legislation, which has uh, been approved by the legislature. I don't believe it's been signed into law by the governor yet. But while Hawaii lawmakers are going after folks who are trying to exercise their Second Amendment rights lawfully, you see stories like this. No charges yet for felon who brought gun to Honolulu court. Yeah. How about that? Um, a month. This is from the uh, Honolulu Star Advertiser. A month after a convicted felon with 37 prior arrests and citations was arrested for bringing an unserialized firearm as well as drug paraphernalia to a circuit court in Honolulu, the State Department of the Attorney General has yet to file charges. Yeah. The Attorney General's office previously declined to comment about why Jordan uh, Minishima, uh, Jordan Minishima Jr., excuse me, was released pending investigation after he was arrested on April 11th on suspicion of weapons and ammunition violations, including having no permit to carry a weapon, being a convicted felon in possession of a weapon, and third degree promoting a dangerous drug. Back in April. All right, now it's June, and the AG's office is still awfully cagey about why they haven't filed charges yet. David Day, an attorney and spokesperson for the AG's office, excuse me, told the Honolulu Star Advertiser, quote, to protect the integrity of the investigative process, the Department of the Attorney General does not make statements regarding the existence or status of criminal investigations. So in other words, no comment. Yeah. As the Star Advertiser writes, uh, Minishima's 37 prior arrests and citations include felony arrests for robbery, car theft, criminal property damage, drugs, and domestic violence. And again, a laundry list of charges here. He was arrested on April 11th by sheriff's deputies after he walked into a, a courthouse on uh, Punchbowl Street in Honolulu and told the uh, security officer there that he had a gun in his bag. Guard uh, told sheriff's deputies Minishima gave them permission to search his bag. Deputies uh, found a firearm without a serial number, as well as ammunition, Um Deputy, uh, deputies also allegedly found drugs and drug paraphernalia on Minishima at the time of his arrest. Now, I don't know if that has anything to do with the fact that he walked into a courtroom and said, yeah, I've got a gun or a courthouse. Say, I've got a gun here. You can search my bag. Maybe those drugs had something to do with it. Not really sure. But uh, again, kind of inexplicable <laughs> that with all of the evidence against Minishima, um, the AG's office has not filed charges here, right? I, I doubt, highly doubt, that they would be nearly as lackadaisical if it were somebody with a concealed carry license who had done the same thing, had walked into that courthouse, even inadvertently and said, oh, you know what? I forgot. I had my gun on me. I'm just going to turn around and leave, right? 
Something tells me that individual will be facing charges, even while uh, Minishima so far has managed to escape consequences for his actions. Today's Armed Citizen story from uh, Georgia, where a judge has ruled that a man was acting in self-defense when he shot two people at a party. Uh, this is from a WSB TV. Incident happened back in uh, 2021. Uh, the uh, armed citizen, uh, Philip Thomas, at the time was an associate athletic director at Morehouse University. And he was arrested on aggravated assault charges after he uh, fired a gun, injured two people during a, a party that year. Um, this week, WSB reports that a judge ruled that Thomas was acting within the bounds of self-defense laws and throughout the case against him. Um, Chinway Foster, who was uh, representing uh, Philip Thomas, as well as uh, said that Thomas and a guy named Kendrick Cooper, both members of the Omega Psi Psi fraternity, had an argument about a fraternity-related issue that uh, escalated into that shot being fired. When Thomas shot Cooper, the bullet actually passed through Cooper and wounded another man named Christopher Swain, who was the uh, host of the party, and a friend to uh, both of those gentlemen. Uh, but Chimley Foster said it could have been Thomas who was shot if he had not defended himself. He said the fight escalated to a physical one, and Cooper had put Thomas into a jujitsu hold. Cooper described in court documents as a, a competitive mixed martial arts fighter. According to uh, the court documents, Cooper had walked away from Thomas, but then put another frat brother named Bruce into a chokehold. Um, that incident apparently stopped, but later that night, Thomas was moving his gun and other items from the back of his SUV where he had stored them when Cooper spotted him and then ran towards him. Thomas told Cooper to stop, but he kept coming. Thomas said, when he lunged at me, I had my weapon in my left hand and I shot him. Thomas, again, charged with aggravated assault, among other charges. But uh, his attorney, Jenny Foster, said she quickly knew that the right defense was self-defense. And the judge agreed. Fulton County Superior Court Judge Robert McBurney, ruling in favor of Thomas, uh, noting that he was, quote, acting within the bounds of the self-defense laws that our legislature has duly passed when he used that gun to repel what he reasonably believed to be another potentially deadly assault. Uh, so there you go. Now, you know, this is not a situation where, um, how do I want to put this? I think everybody involved in this situation wishes that it had ended up differently, including Thomas. He said, my life's been turned upside down multiple times like a dryer just tumbling. Your life can be shattered, taken away, or altered in these splits of a second. He said he resigned from Morehouse University to focus on his criminal defense. No word on whether or not he will be able to rejoin the uh, staff there at Morehouse University now that uh, he has been acquitted by a judge. Meanwhile, a DeKalb County DA, uh, Sherry Boston, who was appointed to prosecute the case, said, um, we knew when we received the case. Based on the evidence, it may be difficult to prosecute. While we respect Judge McBurney's ruling, we are still considering options regarding an appeal and are consulting with the victims and their families. Now, I, I, I confess, I'm not an attorney and I'm not familiar with the particulars of Georgia law, but if a judge found that he was acting in self-defense, I would think that the uh, rule of uh, double jeopardy would preclude these charges from being filed again against Philip Thomas. But we'll keep our eyes open because it sounds like the prosecutor here may be trying to go after Thomas for anything 
she thinks she might be able to uh, get a prosecution for or a conviction for. Uh, finally today, our good deed of the day, in the right place at the right time, willing and able to do the right thing. Some construction workers in Maysville, Oklahoma, who came to the aid of an 81-year-old man named Carl Amos, who was the victim of an attack of bees. Yeah, that's poor Carl Amos there in his uh, hospital bed, stung by more than 200 bees in an attack that lasted for hours. The uh, 81-year-old man was mowing his front yard. He's home alone, and a few bees start to attack him. So he got off his riding mower, goes to the porch to get a can of bug spray. His wife, Barbara Amos, said it was only a few bees, and he thought that would take care of him. But... By the time he actually reached the porch, the bees had swarmed, and he was fully engulfed. He had to run away. Um, I actually kept bees for a couple of years, and uh, I, I can tell you, I mean, we always would, you know, suit up. And even if you got the suit on, you got the jacket, you got the gloves, you got the helmet on, man, when you're dealing with hives and there are hundreds of bees flying around, I, yeah, it's. It, I got a little nervous. Unprotected. Being attacked by a swarm of bees, you can imagine. So Carl Amos, bless his heart, man, he tries to run away, trips and falls. He's 81 years old. He breaks his hip. Barbara Amos said he was really in trouble then because more bees were coming and stinging and he couldn't see and move because of his broken hip. According to reports, the bees attacked every part of his uncovered skin around his head and neck, continued to sting on his face, inside his nose, through his eyelids. Oh, my God, I can't even imagine. And this poor guy laid there for three hours until a group of construction workers from a business behind their home spotted him laying in the yard. He had been waving his knee to try to get their attention or attract someone's attention. And they finally spotted him. They rushed over to Amos, called 911. First responders ended up spraying water on the beast to stop the attack. Barbara Amos was returning from out of town. She shows up about the time the paramedics get there. She said, to see your husband on the ground with all these people around and bees, it was very disturbing. They really saved his life, and we are so eternally grateful for them. Yeah, no doubt. Carl Amos taken to a hospital, had to go surgery, undergo surgery Saturday morning to repair his hip. Uh, according to uh, BlackHillsFox.com, doctors still finding and removing bee stingers during the surgery. Uh, he is now listed as stable. He is expected to make a full recovery. It's estimated, however, he's estimated stung more than 200 times during that uh, three-hour period. His wife, Barbara, said, I guess if you say a person has grit, he has grit. Once he determines to do something, he does it. And he has extreme faith in God, of course. The bees are gone now. Beekeepers uh, removed the hive on Tuesday of this week, thankfully. Gary Selman, uh, who was the beekeeper who helped uh, remove the uh, hive said he's really a tough guy. You have to be really tough to withstand that many stings. Um, yeah, you think? Uh, you know, again, one or two. I've dealt with that. It sucks. I can't imagine going through what Carl Amos went through. And again, if it were not for those construction workers who saw Carl's knee waving for help, who ran over there, call nine one one. Uh, and again, got to first responders on the scene to uh, get those bees away from this octogenarian. Who knows what might have happened? So in the right place, at the right time, willing and able to do the right thing. Those anonymous construction workers in Maysville, Oklahoma, we thank you 
for your very, very good deed. Prayers up to Carl Amos for a, a speedy recovery. All right, that is going to do it for this edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. I want to thank you for being a part of the program as always. We really do appreciate it. Uh, be sure to check out BearingArms.com throughout today. We'll give you the latest Second Amendment news and information from all across the nation. And, uh, you know, listen, I started the show by talking about joining these organizations like Farmers Policy Coalition, Second Amendment Foundation, Fighting the Good Fight. I'd also encourage you to become a VIP member at Bearing Arms. Uh, not only will you be supporting the independent Second Amendment journalism that we do at the website, but we're going to say thank you by giving you exclusive content you won't find anywhere else. New stories and analysis that matter because your support matters a great deal. So thank you again. All right. We'll see you back here on Friday for another edition of Bearing Arms Cam and Company. Again, Attorney Peter Tillum is going to be with us talking about uh, New York concealed carry laws. Until then, be well, be safe, and be free.